the church does not grow and all of that. I understand that without, without growing members, we grow people, God grows the church, but we're, we're really good. We have systems that are designed. If you like all these church conferences, I'm not against them. Like, I think they're good, but like all these church conferences about growth and systems for members and, you know, all this stuff and next steps. And we do all that, but we have a lot of conferences and we have a lot of books and we have a lot of resources that deal with that. But what we're doing, I think ourselves a disservice when we put more emphasis on producing members and less emphasis on producing missionaries. We're missionaries. You're a missionary to Sydney. You know, you're a missionary. I'm a missionary to LA. And so I need to understand what that really looks like. And most oftentimes what that looks like is taking Matthew 6 literally, like seek first the kingdom. Welcome to the Hacker Podcast. My name is Greg Hackathorn. I hope you all are doing well. I apologize for my voice. I lost it a bit yesterday preaching for a local church here in Sydney. Shout out to the Pentecostals of Parameda and Pastor Ben Revel. It was great being with them. Uh, but I wanted to make sure to get this podcast out to you today. So uh, please don't mind the scratchy voice. It'll only be for a couple minutes. Today, we are blessed to be joined by a great preacher and friend of Australia, David McGovern. He is the pastor of Angeles Church in Los Angeles, California. He's a Metro missionary to Los Angeles, where he and his family has planted two churches. He has a passion for missions and cities in particular. I had a great time talking to him, and I left the conversation challenged uh, by what he had to share and the insight that he had. Before we get to the conversation, I want to encourage you to share this with a friend if you get something out of it, which I'm sure you will, and allow it to bless them as well. Also, if you have time to rate and review this show, hopefully we've earned a five-star rating from you. I'd greatly appreciate that as it provides me feedback and it makes it easier for new listeners to discover the podcast. Well, I'm glad my voice survived long enough to make it through all of that. Now let's get to my conversation with David McGovern. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's an honor, man. Pleasure to be on and excited about what you are doing here with the podcast. And it's really great to be back in Australia, at least uh, virtually or, um, you know, via podcast. So love all my, my mates in Aussie. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, man, I'm, I'm excited. Really, really excited to be on today. Yeah, we were just talking about how it, it's been a while since you've been down here. I think you were coming almost every year there for a while. And uh, we, we we love you down here in Australia. And so many of the young people who are now leaders within the church were impacted by your ministry at camps and wow. youth conferences. And so it's, it's an a honor to have you join us today. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And those who may not know you, getting to know you a bit more, uh, experiencing all that uh, David McGovern has learned throughout the years, and hopefully we can grow together in this conversation. Absolutely. Well, I'd like to start these out by um, getting to know a bit uh, about your story. Some of us have heard it, but uh, a lot of people wouldn't have heard your story. Uh, So if if you wouldn't mind sharing with us a bit about your background, where you come from, 
that sort of thing. It kind of gives us an idea of, of your worldview and, and how you approach things. So if you wouldn't mind telling us a bit about your, your life growing up. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I grew up in a, first of all, great church in the LA area. And, uh, uh, it was a revival church. It was a, a church plant that was started by a man named Kenneth Fields. Kenneth Fields was a, a pioneer for the United Pentecostal Church in the uh, middle of the 20th century. So he began planting churches in the 1950s and planted them all the way through till 1969, which was his last church plant where he planted a church in Ventura County, which is like a suburb of Los Angeles. That's where my family came to God. So I'll give you a little bit about the story. So I, I, I started coming to church when I was uh, about two years old. My mom had received the Holy Ghost on a Sunday night. And uh, here's what happened. So my, my mother was living in Hollywood and she was, uh, she had just had my sister a few years prior. And then she had, she had had me, she was uh, pregnant with my, uh, youngest with my younger brother and her sister named Gail moved to uh, Ventura County and was shacking up with a, a, a sailor, a, a Navy guy. And um, there was a church there that had been started by Kenneth Fields. They had an outreach program led by a woman who her name was uh, sister Bobby Lane. Bobby Lane used to bake pies and she used to go into the hood and knock on apartment doors and she would invite people to church. And so she knocked on my, my mom's sister's apartment door and um, my mom's sister, chain smoker, drug user. And she invited her to church and Gail said, I don't want to go to church. And so Bobby Lane saw Gail's son named Jay, who's my older cousin. And he was four years old at the time. And so this is going to sound weird in the context of uh, the year 2021, but she asked if she could bring Jay at four years old to church. So Jay at four years old got in the van wow. <laughs> and went to church. And so obviously that doesn't make sense in, in 2021, but this was like 1981 or 1982. Mm -hmm. And so it's a different world. And so uh, Gail sent Jay on the van to Sunday school and Jay went to Sunday school and at four years old, believe it or not, at four years old, got the Holy Ghost in wow. children's church. He went home that day and he told his his mom, he said, I, I got the Holy Ghost. And his mom is like, what in the world is the Holy Ghost? And Jay's like, I don't know, mom, but, but I got the Holy Ghost. You know, he's a four-year-old kid. And so she went to church that night, that Sunday night, to see what it was all about. And she got the Holy Ghost that night. She went home and she called my mom, her sister. And she's like, hey, I got the Holy Ghost. And my mom, also a chain smoker, a drinker, drug user. Um, she's like, what's the Holy Ghost? And Gail said, I don't know. I really don't know, but I got it. It was the most amazing thing I've ever experienced. So my mom thought my sister had joined a cult, you know, <laughs> of course at, at this time, this is like in LA, there was all this wild stuff going on in this yeah. period of time. You had, you know, all these different, you know, movements and cults and all this kind of stuff going on. And so she really thought she was going to go save her sister from a cult. And so the backstory though, is that my mother was addicted and to substances and things of that nature. 
had gone through a really horrendous uh, physical assault and had contemplated ending her life even while pregnant with my younger brother and didn't know that you know this was all part of god's plan to get her into the house of god she went the next week on a sunday night and she she took her last you know swig of a cigarette outside the front doors of the united pentecostal church in oxnard california went in service got the holy ghost got baptized in jesus name on the spot and uh never looked back has lived for god ever since and she raised me and my siblings in church my dad came to church for a little while he ended up backsliding my parents ended up divorcing um, but i was raised in the house of god i was raised under an amazing man of god who was a pioneer and a church planter he planted seven churches mm-hmm. all up and down the west coast um in the western region of the united states arizona california nevada and just a, a tremendous church builder church planter um received the holy ghost in the china sea while fighting in the korean war he was baptized by a man named arliss glass mm-hmm. uh, brother glass is also a pioneer for the mm-hmm. united pentecostal church and um, a pioneer in our bible college movement he helped start bible colleges uh, brother glass did and he taught kenneth fields a bible study in the mess hall in korea baptized him in the china sea and brother fields came home and um, and ended up working in texas for a little while with like brother cp kilgore and men like that and uh, brother green in texas was the superintendent his daughter and brother fields got married and uh, that joyce and kenneth fields became church planters and church builders the last church that they planted was in the la area and that's the church that my family came to god and that's a little bit that's that's like like the five minute view of of my story try to kind of connect the dots and kind of help you i guess uh get the sense of of why i'm passionate about number one about people Mm -hmm. uh, about souls Mm -hmm. um, about um, broken families and also about church planting because Mm -hmm. um, you can't help but get some of that you know ingrained in your spirit growing up in the atmosphere that uh that i grew up in under brother fields and so a lot of his um i would say some of his mantle certainly just a lot of his anointing you know you just kind of um i grew up in it he passed away when i was 20 but it was a dynamic environment to grow up in a church plant a revival church church that was all about reaching the community and um, making disciples for christ you know so that's a little bit of my story yeah, I was going to make that connection. I hadn't made that connection in the past, but it makes sense because you, you had told me that story about your pastor, uh, how he was uh, a church planner, and it makes complete sense that uh, you in turn would uh, grab a hold of that vision and want to be involved in the church planting process. We're, we're going to dive into that a bit later, but I do want to get to this first before we, we move in that direction. When did you first feel the call to ministry? So you talked about how that you were raised in church pretty much and that uh, a church environment. But when did you personally feel the call to ministry, to preaching ministry, to being a minister of the gospel? Yeah. So, you know, like I said, it's growing up in a church like that under a pastor like that. I mean, he was passionate about the things of God, you know, and it's, um, he, he just, he didn't play games. You know, he was just, he was all in for the kingdom. I mean, he took Matthew 
644, just, just literally, you know, seek first the kingdom of God and mm. his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. And his life was just all about the kingdom. And I mean, every Sunday it was instilled and at, you know, it was, I was seven years old and I had a dream. And in this dream, I saw, I saw myself on the mission field. And this is when I knew God was calling me. This is when I knew God was calling me uh, at, at seven. I mean, truly, really seven years old. I, I can remember the dream to this day. I was on the mission field and, and I was in a service with a mass of people, uh, relatively large mass of people. And it was people of all nationalities, all ethnicities, all uh, language groups all together. And, and I went to my pastor with that dream and at seven years old, you know, and I, and I'm thankful that he took it seriously. You know, mm -hmm. he didn't just pass it off as just a kid, right? Just a kid, you know, having a dream, but he really took it seriously, you know? And, and so because of that, he, from an early age, he started challenging me, you know, and holding me to a higher, a higher standard. And I, and I remember feeling at times because there was a, a small Christian school at the church that I attended. And I felt at times like he'd single me out. I would get in trouble where other kids weren't. And mm. I remember he reminded me later on in life, he said it's, um, or later on in his life, he reminded me that, that you have a call on your life. God spoke to you at an early age and he had a duty, you know, he told me he had a duty to me to that calling to, to hold me to a higher standard. And so, um, went to him with that, with that dream and he began to, you know, over the course of the next 13 years of my life, he began to instruct me, lead me, guide me in the right kind of, uh, direction. And there's a whole lot in there that obviously I could address and, and talk to, uh, uh, talk about right. in that, the order of that and how, what to do with the call mm. that's on your life. And, um, well, but that's kind of how feel free to yeah. dig into that a little bit. What do you do when you do feel that call? What do you, what, what should be your next step when, when you feel a call to ministry? What do you think yeah. should be that next step for somebody? Right. Um, well, the, the, the best example we have of what to do when you're a young person and you feel called of God or you think you've heard the voice of God is in First Samuel. You know, First Samuel and tells the story of Samuel's calling. God called Samuel. And it was very clear God was speaking to Samuel. And the first thing that Samuel did was he went to his pastor. You know, he went to Eli. And, uh, and there's an order to this. So God will call you beyond your capability, but he will never instruct you beyond your initiative. Hmm. So God will, God will put in your heart desires and uh, dreams Again, I had a dream and as a kid, I had a dream, but um, God will put dreams, God will put vision, God will put a call, but those are beyond your capability. You know, uh, when you're young, God can speak to you when you're young. This is the beauty of, of youth is it's raw, it's unfiltered, it's unfettered. Your hearing's better. I mean, physically, your hearing's better when you're young and certainly your, your spiritual hearing, you know, the Bible even talks about this with Eli, he had gotten old and he was missing out on the, the call of God in his old age. And I mean, God will talk to elders 
it's not what I'm saying. Of course, he'll talk to elders, but he calls young people. Mm. He, he speaks to young people at a frequency that they're just able to tune into better. When you're young, you're not bogged down with life. You're not stressed out with bills. You're not consumed with mortgage payments and insurance. You know, it's, mm -hmm. you're young. And so God will speak to you, but there is an order it, because it's beyond your capability. So you have to take the initiative to receive instruction. And, and that initiative, when you're young, it looks like going to your pastor. And he went, he went to his pastor and three times, you know, Samuel or Eli told Samuel, ah, you know, go down, go, 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 go lay down and, and go to bed. And it, it's, you're, you're just a kid. You're just, you know, but all three times, you know, God spoke to Samuel and, but, but the order here is that each time, even when Samuel probably, if I can take some license here, was probably frustrated that Eli maybe wasn't taking him seriously. He still submitted. He still received that instruction mm -hmm. and he had the initiative to receive that instruction and to seek out that instruction. And I believe it's because of that, that um, Samuel was, was able to, he knew what to do with his calling. You know, you can, you can, and there's nothing more frustrating than having a sense of a calling on your life and not knowing what to do. Right. This is like the great tension for a lot of young people, particularly young adults. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. I, I have this call on my life. You know, what do I do with it? I, I feel called. Like, what do I do? And how do I know? Right. Those are the big questions that we ask so often in church as young adults, particularly. How do I know what my calling is or what my uh, direction is? Right. And uh, and so we have ministries, young adult ministries, hyphen, like specifically tailored to those specific questions. But I think there's a couple of things here. You have to have initiative to receive instruction. And when you don't, you're eternally frustrated mm. because you sense that your your life is meaningful you sense that god has his hand on you you sense that god's speaking to you but you don't take the initiative to operate under submission you don't take the initiative to seek out direction and instruction and also have the initiative to be able to receive that right. instruction even when it's not what you want to hear yeah because a lot of times when you feel a call of God in your life and you go to a leader, you go to a pastor, it's not always going to be what you want to hear. It might exactly. be the exact opposite of what you want to hear. In Samuel's case, it was, ah, go lay down. Um, but, you know, and there was, there was, obviously there were elements that were present in Samuel's life. And, and I always look for these when young people come to me and say, pastor, I feel called. So, well, let's take a look. Look, let's examine if this is really a call of God or maybe it's uh you know, something else. And so there are elements. You look at Samuel's life. I mean, he was in the, he was in the temple. He was, he was, um, his life revolved around the things of God. I, I always get leery of young people that, you know, they, their priority is elsewhere. Right. Um, in, in other words, I mean, there's nothing wrong with being involved in activities and being involved in sports and being involved in academic pursuits. Really. I don't, see anything inherently wrong with those pursuits but if they're keeping you out of the house of god and they're keeping you away from the things of god you know it's really hard to truly receive the call of god on your life if you're busy elsewhere yeah. you know but samuel was he was planted in the house of god he was in the presence of god and he was in a place the bible says that the ark of the lord had not yet gone out so the 
the the, the light was still burning and, and, and in scripture the light always represents the word of god so he was in a place where he was in the word he was in the presence of god um, he was in the house of god so it's easy to go to a youth convention you know and and come home and say oh, i i'm called of god i feel mm-hmm. a call of god but yep. and i'm not discounting that god can call a young person at a camp at a mm-hmm. convention at a big spiritual environment but i think the greatest most powerful and deep call of god you'll ever receive are in quiet moments when you are fully committed to the things of god and it's really then that god calls people to meaningful meaningful deep ministry and and it's really not going to be at some big event uh, or some some massive cataclysmic moment mm. it's often in the in the quiet of of uh, discipline and discipleship right. and followership yeah. Yeah. you know that god will speak yeah and you know you might get that initial call or as you were saying the initial call at like a camp or a conference but it all all of that hinges on your response to it how you're you're going to react to that are you going to dig into those disciplines into the prayer in the time of god yeah. into the word and i love your point about the initiative you take the initiative to receive instruction that's missing so many times with people who feel the call of god is that when they receive that that when they receive that instruction or not only that they feel like the pastor or whoever they're sitting under is the person that needs to seek them out that they're the ones that need to come to them. If, well, if if I'm called, then the pastor will come to me and talk to me about it. And it's like, well, right. no, you need to have some initiative. You're the one with the calling. Then you need to take that initiative and go and re- receive instruction. I, I really love that point. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's crucial. Because again, you can have the calling and be so frustrated. And I've met so many young adults and young people that are just, you know, they, they have that sense. I've got a call of God on my life, but I don't have, I don't know what to do with it. Mm. Well, you know, you have to, you have to be able to receive uh, instruction because again, God will call you beyond your capability, but he'll never instruct you beyond your initiative. So there's, there's, yeah. Just as a follow-up to that, you know, the scripture says that there are many called, but few are chosen. Do you think that factors in that, that kind of what you're hinting at where you might have that initial call at a big event but it's in those quiet moments of, of discipline in that deeper, that almost like a deeper calling to specific things. Do you think that factors in there? That Sure. I do. You know, I, I look at that verse. I, that verse always makes me think of like when you were a kid and uh, you were playing. Well, let's contextualize this for um, the land down under. <laughs> and uh, when you're playing rugby, right, as a kid, um, footy. And you you know everyone's hey we're gonna play a game and everyone huddles around many are called but like who who gets picked first you know mm-hmm. like who's the chosen ones you know and those are the ones that have typically taken the initiative to work at a craft to become good athletes or what have you and and so it's a simple analogy but i think it fits a little bit here that when you take the initiative to to work at this to become a person who takes these concepts very literally very seriously um that's kind of how you get picked 
right? Mm. It's many are called, but, but, but few are chosen. Everybody has an opportunity. Everybody has, it's a level playing field in the kingdom. You know, it really is. It's a level playing field. I mean, that's the revolutionary act of the New Testament church. It's leveled the playing field. There was neither Jew nor Greek. There was neither male nor female. There was neither rich nor poor, you know, in our context, black or white or whatever, and, and uh, nor bond nor free. And it was just everybody had the same opportunity in the church, in the kingdom of God. But to truly be chosen to be used, I think there are that that perhaps uh, lies a little more in our hands than we oftentimes like to admit. Mm, I agree. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, because so many times we feel like uh, it's all supernatural and and there isn't a whole lot of natural involvement. But, you know, it's definitely a combination of the two. I, I completely agree with you on that. I had a question about you served. So you felt that initial call, you followed up, you had that training from your pastor. At what capacity have you served in leadership up until you became a, a church planner in the Los Angeles area? Yeah. So again, 13 years, I, I had from the point that I went to my pastor with the call of God on my life until he passed away. Um, I served under him for as best as I could for 13 years. I did uh, just about anything that was asked of me as a young person. And in that time, when I was about, he passed away in 2000, I was 20 years old. And two years prior to this, or about 18 months prior to this, year and a half, we were on a, we were on a wedding. We were at a wedding on a boat. And a friend of mine was getting married on a boat in the, LA Harbor or off the coast of LA and pastor Fields is performing the ceremony. And he came up to me after the ceremony and put his arm around me and he started talking and, and I told him, I, I said, I, I think God's calling me to go to Bible college, you know, mm -hmm. and that was just, you know, cause I think a lot of times and for the record, let me just stop here and say, I'm a proponent of Bible college. I support Bible college. We've sent as, student pastors and senior pastors, we've, we've sent people to Bible college, we've helped people go, all that. My girls will probably all go to Bible college. I mean, I, I believe in it, but um, Brother Fields, he looked at me and he said, I don't think that's for you. And I'll be honest with you, I, I really struggled with that. You know, I, I really, really struggled with that. It wasn't the answer I wanted. Right. And I had a lot of friends that were going to Bible college. This was the late nineties, early two thousands, a lot of friends going to Bible college. I really wanted to go a number of young people from my church that I grew up in had gone to Bible college. Brother Fields, you know, he pastor, he said, I don't think it's for you. He said, uh, there's, there's something different that God wants to do. It's not better. It's just different. Um, it's not worse. It's just different. And he said, Bible college is beneficial, but I don't think it's for you. And I, I really had a hard time for a few months. You know, I was maybe a little bitter in my heart. Like, yeah, I really wanted to go. But he, 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 he told me this. He said, if you will stay here and you'll work with me at the time, I, I really maybe thought it was a little arrogant, you know, but 
but really it turned out to to be really wise he said uh if you will if you'll stay here and work with me he said i can teach you more for your calling i can teach you more in the next couple of years that you would than you could learn in four years of bible college in terms of practical experience and you know based on my calling the dream i had missions and etc i didn't necessarily like that but i i submitted and uh i sought that instruction out and i and i followed it and it turned out to be the best decision outside of you know marrying my wife you know the best decision that i, I ever made in my life because i got to spend the last uh year and a half of his life with him just being there just right just helping out in any way i could he started having me um, serve in youth in Sunday school. He started having me teach classes. And he started having me preach on Sunday evenings and things like that. And I just, uh, I, I, I look back and I see the hand of God on that. And it's amazing what God will, will do if you just receive that instruction, you know? And so I was able to, to, you know, like I said, spend the last couple of years of his life being pretty close to him and they're receiving, you know, leadership from him. And so I, I look back at that and it's, uh, again, the best decision in ministry that I've ever made. When he passed away, his son-in-law, Brother Cameron, took, took over as senior pastor of the church there. We've got a great relationship. I worked with, with him. He brought me on as a young adult ministry leader mm -hmm. and uh, served on the committee there that oversaw youth ministry. And worked with worked with young people quite a bit there for the next couple of years, and that's really where my passion for youth ministry was fortified. And in 2003, so this was three years after Brother Fields passed, I met Monique, and we started dating. In 2004, we got engaged, and then in 2005, we got married. And during that time, um, her pastor was Darren Sargent, and he had invited us to come on the team and, and join their staff as the full-time youth pastors, student pastors there at the church in, in San Diego. And so we, we moved from LA to San Diego to be on the team there. And uh, we were there for about eight years, almost eight years, seven and a half, a little over seven and a half years. We were there. And in 2010, we'd been there for, almost six years, so late 2010, early 2011, God really started dealing with us about coming home to LA to uh, plant a church. Mm. And so we really started praying about that. And again, what do you do when you feel the call? You go to your pastor. I went to Brother Sargent. And, you know, it was, there was a, a process here because, you know, years of my life, I thought, well, missions to me has always meant global, right? I'm going to go somewhere. I'm going to go overseas. I'm going to go uh, Africa or Asia or yeah. you know, something like that, right? Um, but when I was in my early 20s, an evangelist came through our church and he gave me a word. And it was essentially along the lines of God gave you a dream, and but it's not what you think it is. And I so I really started you know, praying about that. And then just, I remember right after Monique and I got married, 
maybe a year after we got married, we were driving back through LA to get dinner with some family. And it just hit me. Mm-hmm. It just, the, the realization that that dream was not for global missions. It, it's missions, but it was for home. Right. And it was for LA, which, and it makes so much sense because when I think about that dream, it wasn't the, the, the people group that I was ministering to was not homogenous. It wasn't one group of people. It wasn't all Asian or all African yeah, you're or what, saying it was you know, diverse. All, it was very diverse. And so every ethnicity and nationality you can imagine. And it's just like, oh my goodness, I've, all these years, you know, I'm thinking that I'm going to go somewhere else. And t- come to find out, it, it, it was here. It was mm, home the whole time. And uh, yeah, and so LA is is home. It's our heartbeat. And so 2011, we we started that process, and we met with the district board. Well, you know, we talked to my pastor, and he gave us the green light to do that, and his full support. And he knew God had already spoken to him about uh, transition in our lives. And so we met with our district board, and got approval to plant the church in Glendale. We were about four years into the five years, four years into the church plant in Glendale. God began to deal with us about planting more churches Mm. in LA because LA is vastly underchurched. And so we, uh, we yeah, met I was with the gonna, district board again. I was going to ask you that. Yeah. How many churches are there in the LA area? Because there's what there's over 20 million people in that area, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So Greater Los Angeles is a like a what's called a, a combined statistical area, which is it's it's five counties, all within a 60 mile radius of downtown Los Angeles. So, in the city of LA, I'll just give you some quick data here. In the city of LA, there's well over 4 million people, um, second largest city in North America. In the county, LA County, by far the largest county in the nation, there's almost 11 million people just in the county wow. alone. And then in the five county region of all the suburbs combined. So essentially, if you can get to downtown LA within 60 miles, you're considered greater yeah. Los Angeles. Um, there's about 20 million people. So the greater LA region is, you know, in our lifetime will overtake even Metro New York as the largest Metro region in, in North America. So, and and just for context for that, for some of the listeners, we have, I think 25 million in the entire country of Australia. So there's 20 million within a 60 mile radius around the city of Los Angeles. We have 25 million on our entire continent here in Australia. Wow. It's wild. Yeah, it's it's really wild to think about. And it's an amazing city. It's a global city. There's, I mean, every nationality you can imagine in, mm. in one place. Um, L.A. is uh, has the largest number of people groups where their largest population outside of their nation of origin is here. So mm-hmm. more Mexicans anywhere other than Mexico, more Filipinos anywhere other than the Philippines, more Japanese anywhere than um, and, and so you go down this, I, I forget the, I mean, it's 20 something nations where the largest Korea, uh, Armenia, Iran, um, the largest people group outside of their nation of origin is right here. So it really is the whole world in one place. And in this region, uh, in the, in the suburbs and everything, the greater LA area, there's about 20, 24 churches. But in the city is where it gets 
even more dire. The city limits of Los Angeles, there's well over 4 million people. Some people say it's closer to five if you count undocumented persons, which we don't really have a way to quantify that, but it, it feels like there's probably about a million extra people here when you're mm. sitting on the freeways. <laughs> um, we have in the city limits of LA, before we planted uh, our church, there were two United Pentecostal churches in the city limits of Los Angeles. Wow. Um, so, so now there are, there are four United Pentecostal churches in the city limits. So we, we just feel like our calling is to plant more churches. Right. And, um, and, and I don't know what that, to be fully transparent, I really don't know. I, I had a good idea, I thought, before COVID, and then COVID hit, and everything kind of changed. But we do know that our, our mission has not changed. The world has changed. The city has changed. I think the methods are going to change to a degree, but the, the, the mission has not changed. You know, our mission is to plant truth-preaching life-giving churches in this city where it's just incredibly underchurched. So to put this in perspective, everybody that is connected to the UPC probably knows who the Pentecostals of Alexandria are, right? So it's a great church in our fellowship. They put on a great event because of the times, a phenomenal conference. They're in a state, Louisiana, where there's about four and a half million people in Louisiana. In the so entire state. We have, yeah, in their whole state, right? And there's 450 United Pentecostal churches in Louisiana. In LA, same amount of people in one city, and there's two, four. you know? Or two. Yeah. Well, four, four, there's four now. But when we first came, mm -hmm. there were two. So it's really just eye-opening when you put it in that perspective. I will say this. Uh, I will say this, I think for years, and there's so much I could say, I'm trying to unpack just a few things here and not and not use up the, all the time on this one thing. <laughs> yeah. But I, I will say this, you know, I think it, it, in America, 80% of Americans now live in what would be classified as a, as a metro or a, a, an urban to, to metro to suburban area. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, non-rural. Yeah, it's roughly the same here. We have a lot of people who live in cities here in yeah. Australia. A lot of people live in cities, suburbs, and now exurbs, which are suburbs of suburbs. You know, mm -hmm. we have people that commute to L.A. from Las Vegas. Wow. So so the the western fringe of Cook County in Las Vegas is, you know, about three, three plus hour drive, three and a half hour drive, or it's a 30 minute plane ride. And I mean, I know people that work here. Monday through Friday and go home to Vegas. I mean, mm -hmm. so you have exurbs. And, and so what I'm saying is 80% live in non-rural communities. In the United Pentecostal Church, 80% of our constituents are in rural communities. Mm -hmm. So we have this 80% of our churches in places where only 20% of the population is. Right. Right. So we only have 20% of our churches in 80 places where 80% of our population is we, we fled the cities like we, we fled the cities why is it that a place like la which is the birthplace of modern pentecost hmm. in my view true. there should be a hundred united pentecostal churches in this city at least mm -hmm. but i think what happened was we fled the cities we and it, it's not just a upc thing it's this is a it's all across the board i mean southern baptist and i mean you go down the you know, assembly of god 
and you go down the line and, and yeah. churches have fled evangelical churches fled the cities and so we're, we're, we're left with this with this uh, this uh, deficit here but I do I do think that there is a call that's going out mm-hmm. just in the last month I've spoken with three young people that are all three of them attend Urshan and all three of them have called and said I feel called to LA so I think like there there is a turning mm-hmm. like God there we've been praying God send laborers into the harvest right that's that's the prayer of the harvest it's like, send laborers send laborers and I think God's doing that he's you know, you go to uh, our Bible colleges are, are talking more about missiology and, and reaching our cities. And and this is bigger than just right. It's so anyway, what I'm saying is I, I think there is a, a turning of the tide. Mm-hmm. And I believe that the next generation of young people that are coming out of our Bible colleges right now, God is putting in their heart that this is bigger than just a job or opportunity or a position somewhere at some church to fulfill go to the cities and 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 reach reach the people i mean city this is where the people are at you know yeah and become become a missionary to a city become a missionary to uh, a place where there are currently no churches and yeah it's i i'd noticed that for a while because we have struggled as a church here in Australia to continue to grow churches and that sort of thing. And a lot of that stems from the fact that the vast majority of our population are in cities. So be, and, and cities are hard. It's, it's not easy to plant a church in a right. city. There's the issue of people who live in cities think differently. They behave differently. Not only that, but you know, your property is going to be a lot more expensive. Everything is right. going to cost more. So it's hard work. But as you said, that's where the people are at. And the mission has to go above being comfortable. And I think that that leads me nicely to, I really wanted to know your answer to this question. And I think you've, you've kind of touched on it a little bit. But you were a youth pastor for eight years in San Diego area. You were full time, right? You were you were paid youth pastor there. So, we were. how how difficult was it, and 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 how is it that, I guess, communicating with someone who may feel that call but are in a comfortable situation? It could be a job. God's calling them to leave that job to to go to an unchurched city. They may have a career, and God is wanting to move them in an, another direction. How were you able to overcome that? You know, getting stuck in a comfortable position where the bills are paid, you've got a job, you're still, especially in your position, you're still doing things for the kingdom. You know, you're, you're a youth pastor. How, how do you make that transition? That's a great question. And I think this, this kind of speaks to the heart of um, where the transition in our movement is going to have to address and kind of come back around to, to mission, right? Because the early the early Pentecostal movement in North America that that was birthed in the Azusa Street revivals and you know Topeka, Kansas and Indianapolis and Houston and these were urban revivals. Mm-hmm. I mean, these were cities, and it got away from that. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. 
that we probably don't have time today to unpack all the reasons for that. I think some of them were, some of them were um, economic, some of them were racial. Um, but but this is what happens when I think um, there's there's like a natural human progression towards comfort. But my problem with that is, what does medicine say? Or, or what does it say about your health when they say, hey, it's time to just make them comfortable? Mm-hmm. You know, that means you're dying. You know, so right. you're going to go home and end of life care, right? It's it's hospice, it's end of life. It's You're just going to make them comfortable. There's really nothing else. You're dying. And I, I think there's a parallel here that when we seek comfort, it's something has died within mm. us. And that is a natural human condition. I, I, I fully understand that. I'm guilty of it. You're guilty of it. We're all guilty of it, um, seeking comfort. But I do think there's a few things here. We have to stay on mission. We have to stay on mission. This is difficult when you make decisions based on comfort. In other words, you you know, I know of Holy Ghost filled families that have left the city because, you know, they went and bought a cheaper house somewhere. It's like, okay, you can do that, but you can't do both. Mm. You, you can't fulfill mission and also pursue comfort at, at, you know, in an ideal world, I can live a comfortable life while I while I pursue mission, but it doesn't always work out that way. Mm-hmm. And spoiler alert, you know, if you read the New Testament, it rarely ever works out that way. <laughs> yeah. um, but we have this idea, and I think it's a Western idea that has almost become a doctrine in the Western church, which is like your best life now. And, and uh, God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and all those kinds of things. And I don't see that. Mm-hmm. I don't see that supported in scripture. Yes, God loves his people. There's no doubt about that. Yes, God desires for his people to be blessed, but I don't think blessing often, I don't think blessing looks the way that we have shaped it uh, to look through our Western lens. I completely um, agree, yeah. Yeah, and and so if the church can stay on mission, you know, the, the church doesn't have a mission. And a lot of people say, what's the mission of the church? What's the mission statement? What's the, the church doesn't have a mission. The mission has a church. Mm. The, the Great Commission was was God's design and the vehicle that he created to usher that design into implementation was the church. We yeah. are the vehicle. Yeah. So it's like we have this backwards. We, mm. Well, it's the mission. No, we are the mission. Like this is this whole thing is the mission. The mission has a church, and the moment that the church sacrifices mission for comfort, like we've lost the whole thing. And and here's 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 how I know this because again, I've seen Holy Ghost filled people with a call of God on their life flee and run and and go somewhere else because it's a it's a red state, right? And I don't know if this if this. Uh, <laughs> Uh, makes sense to uh, no, Australians. No, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, the red state, or it's more comfortable, mm-hmm. kind of, or it's in a more, you know, the the environment there is more amenable to a more conservative lifestyle. Right. Right. And so we're going to flee the cities because the cities are full of liberals and mm. 
and we don't like the politics in the cities and we don't like the you know the way people vote here and and we don't like right so and mm -hmm. so people leave and they have cities are expensive there's cheaper gas out there there's yeah. a cheaper house out there and and holy ghost filled people now if god called you to the sticks of utah or whatever right to where the houses are cheaper if god called you there go but if you're just pursuing comfort like we have to have this conversation you're holy agree. ghost filled yeah. you're holy ghost filled you can't you can't flee sydney because it's expensive like you mm -hmm. you gotta like you have the holy ghost right. man like so so we have gotten really good in the western church at producing members but we're really bad at producing missionaries mm. so so we produce members members who come and members who sit and members who worship and members who pay their tithes and all those are good things those are really good things you need members like we have a membership class here <laughs> we desire to produce members here um the church does not grow and all of that i understand that without without growing members we grow people god grows the church but we're, we're really good we have systems that are designed if you like all these church conferences i'm not against them I'm, like i think they're good but like all these church conferences about growth and systems for members and you know all this stuff and next steps and we do all that mm -hmm. we do all that but we have a lot of conferences and we have a lot of books and we have a lot of resources that deal with that but what we're doing i think ourselves a disservice when we put more emphasis on producing members and less emphasis on producing missionaries. Mm -hmm. We're, we're missionaries. You're a missionary to Sydney. You know, you're a missionary. I'm a missionary to LA. Right. And so I need to understand what that really looks like. And most oftentimes what that looks like is taking Matthew six, literally like seek first the kingdom. What is that? Mm -hmm. All of it. <laughs> yeah. All of it, not all just the it. parts I like, all of it. And if that means that I have less square footage than some um, colleagues in a in a, a southern state, or, or I don't, you know, contextualize that for Australia, right? But mm -hmm. if that means I have uh, less in terms of material possessions, if that means I live in a smaller house, if that means my life's a little more hectic, I'm surrounded by people who don't always share the same political ideology as me, mm -hmm. right? These, I think, are small sacrifices in the grand scheme of things. Right. But it says something about a church when we have a hard time making even these small sacrifices, you know? And, um, but I, I think I think COVID has helped. I think um, I think the world we're living in today has, has, really, has really helped to get people to kind of open their eyes and say, hey, there's a, there's a bigger picture here. Yeah. There's so much to un unpack from what you just said there. You're talking about um, the difference between the Western view of blessing and God's view of blessing. And that's a soapbox that, that I've been on recently in conversations with my older brother. Uh, we talk back and forth about that because, yeah, it's frustrating when you when you hear these mes these messages talking about blessing. And it's like, yeah, but you, you guys don't even know how God views blessing. Like you're, you're viewing it in such a way as it's going to make my life better or my life easier. And it's me, I'm the center. Whereas God may be blessing you for an entirely different reason. He may be blessing you in a way that, that you don't even view as blessing, but he does. And also right. the idea of ha having that mission approach when 
when you're a child of God, when you're born again. I, I like how you kept reiterating someone full of the Holy Ghost wanted to flee the city because, you know, they, it's too hard. And I've had that conversation a number of times because Sydney is a hard place to live. It's a hard place to raise a yeah. family. It's not easy, easy. Typically, you have to have two incomes. Standard of living is high. Cost of living is high. But you're either called to the place or you're not. You're either going to be that light in that city or right. the darkness takes over. Like there, there's no other option. There isn't a plan B. Church is God's plan A. There's no plan B. What, what, what right. else is going to happen? Right. Yeah. Uh, greetings, Mary. Thou art highly favored. <laughs> we all want the favor of God, the blessing of God. You know, she wasn't just favored. She had that extra favor on her life, you know. It's like you're highly favored and it's like we want that but what does that look like hmm. what does that look like in our view it's like oh well that means i'm going to get a raise and i'm going to have a big nice house you know two nice cars in the driveway and no the good news mary is you're highly favored hmm. the good news is god's going to do something great with your life but the, you know the good news is you're you're going to give birth to the savior the bad news is you're going to have to suffer and and you're going to have to sacrifice and you're going to have to ultimately watch him die on a criminal's cross why because you're highly favored because sometimes when when god has his hand on your life and you are blessed of god sometimes what that actually looks like is god using your suffering and your pain for his glory and your sacrifice for his kingdom and i think we forget that Mm-hmm. We have to be very careful to to remember that, be cautious to remember that. And in all of that, we're still blessed people. We are yeah. so blessed. I mean, mm-hmm. to the point of being spoiled. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially in the West, yeah, we we are are blessed beyond comprehension to some to a lot of people in the world. Well, this conversation has has gone a few different ways that I didn't necessarily expect, but I've really enjoyed it. I love what we talked about today and, and maybe we can have you on again in the future to talk about some of the other stuff. Love that. But um, I was going to have you talk a bit about preaching, but uh, if you guys want to hear what Brother McGovern has to say about preaching, Adam Shaw did a, a tremendous interview with him on The Restorationist, and you can check that out. But I did want to ask you one final question before we wrap up here today. I like to ask this to a lot of my guests who come on the podcast, but what drives you when it comes to ministry? over the last 45, 50 minutes. I think we've got a good idea of what does, but yeah. I'd like to give you the opportunity yeah. to spell that out. What, what is it that uh, is the driving force for you when it comes to ministry? Yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, I've kind of tried to, the last uh, few years, try to kind of encapsulate like, like uh, what is it like that's in my heart, you know, that, that really, like the one thing, you know, the one thing the hill that that I die on, right? Mm. Um, and I read this story, and I, I was really excited, and I was hoping that at some point I could share this, and I'll be brief, but um, I think your your listeners in Australia will really appreciate this. I read this story about a year and a half ago about a man named James Harrison mm. from Australia, and um, I don't know if you know who he is. I'd never heard of him until I, I had read this, but they call him in Australia, he's known as the man with a golden arm. And every single week for the last 60 years, James Harrison has donated blood plasma from his right arm. Mm. And it's amazing. So I don't have time to share all the details, but 
Google Google James Harrison. He did his first blood donation in like 1955 or something like that. And he got a call from a group of doctors after he donated his blood that they said, hey, there's something in your blood that, you know, we've been looking for. And I, you know, to be honest, this is one of those stories that I was like, ah, there's this too good to be true. But <laughs> I, I, dude, I, I checked, I fact checked and everything. At the time, and I'll start in the 1950s, there were thousands of babies that were dying every year from a deadly condition called rhesus disease. And this was a condition where the woman's, the mother's um, blood cells would turn and they would become aggressive towards the fetus and the baby, and they would attack that unborn baby's um, blood cells. And because of this, thousands of women in the 50s were having um, miscarriages and they didn't know what was, or they didn't know, they didn't know how to, um, how to stop it, how to treat it, you know, and, and, and the ones, the babies that were born oftentimes were born with severe brain damage. Some would survive birth and then just die on the birthing table. But Harrison in his blood, they discovered a very rare antibody called anti-D and anti-D totally prevents rhesus disease. And so according to, this is a crazy statistic, but according to the Australian Red Cross, the anti-D from Harrison's blood is credited with saving the lives of more than 2 million Australian babies. Wow. 2 million babies oh, saved by one man's blood. Say, so what is this? Why, why am I telling the story? Well, you got to hear what he said. So he did an interview recently with CNN and in explaining his mission to save millions of lives, Harrison shares a story about an accident that he had when he was 14 years old and he needed a lung transplant. During this lung transplant, he nearly dies from blood loss. And the doctors performed a life-saving blood transfusion on him as he was bleeding out on that table. And so his life was, was quite literally saved by the blood of another person, right? Mm -hmm. And so at that moment, he says his life's mission became clear. So when he's asked why would you give your blood right every every week every single week for north of 55 years almost 60 years he replies with this he says i give my blood because someone gave their blood to me mm. and i i read that and it just man it just hit me like that's the cross that's calvary right that's we give because he first gave we love because he first love why would why would a missionary spend their life on reaching the lost because someone gave their blood to them right why would someone go across the world or across the uh, nation or across the state or across the street and plant churches and teach bible studies and try to reach people and preach the gospel to sinners because someone did that for them mm. And I think about my life and I think about my story to bring it all back around. You know, when, when my mom was, was addicted to substances and when she had no hope and when she was contemplating her own life, there was a, there was a church plant, you know, that she pretty much literally stumbled into and it mm -hmm. saved her life and it saved her soul and it saved her family. And so that's what drives me, you know, like, why do we do this? Um, well, we do this because it was first done for us. Mm. That's so good. 
That's amazing. I don't know how I've never heard that story. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you you shared it. Just powerful. Why do we do what we do? Because someone did it for us. And not only that, you have the big picture where Jesus did it for us. But in the small picture, as you said, there's that church plant. There's that lady that went to the slums and was reaching out to people. You know, there was every single person can trace back how they came to God through the witness of one person to another person that impacted their eternity forever. And man, if that doesn't drive you to make a difference in someone's life, I don't know what will. I've really enjoyed having this time with you today. Grateful for your friendship and and uh, over the years and, and how you've invested in the church here in Australia as well. I do want to give you uh, one final opportunity to share a word with the listeners, whatever God has laid on your heart specifically for this podcast. So thanks again for your time today, and uh, you can take us out here. Yeah, you know, just kind of reiterating what I said about why do we do what we do, you know, and I think about Moses and how, you know, he he stood in the gap and he, Deuteronomy, you know, I think it's chapter four, it says something so powerful. He says, I must die in this land so that you can cross over Jordan. And he has this realization. It's like, um, we're not Moses, you know, of course, but he has this realization that in order for somebody else to receive their promise, there's something in me that has to sacrifice. You know, it's the same Moses. That's like, Lord, if you're going to block, if you're going to, if you're going to, uh, kill these people, just blot my name out of the book while you're at it. Like, wow, what a powerful, what a powerful statement. I think, um, that's the call to missions. That's what God is kind of putting back into the, into the American or the Western church, the Australian church is just to, just to look at this from the lens of, of sacrifice, to look at this from the lens of, of people that, that need what we, this precious gift of truth and salvation that we have been given. That's we so often um, can be guilty of perhaps not, fully valuing and, and um, to be a little more like Moses to say, whatever I've got to sacrifice here so that my neighbors, my coworkers, uh, the lost people in my community can have an opportunity to receive this great and precious promise. Then let me be that person that's willing to do that, to be able to say, I'll, I'll die in this land, right? I'll sacrifice in this land. I'll I'll commit to this mission so that even if my life affects one person or, or, or one family, you know, and I just really challenge every young person, every, every uh, saint of God that's listening to this today to examine your own heart and to answer that call of God that you're feeling and that you're hearing to be be that person that can say I'll, I'll, I'll do what it takes so somebody else can make it to heaven yeah. and that's what this is all about and if it's in it i mean we can do everything else and we can have good church and sing pretty songs and preach really good sermons and have good events and nice buildings but man if it's not about the center across the street like we've we've just lost sight of it all and i don't think we have i don't i don't I really don't think we have um but, but just in case there's some that have, let's just examine our hearts and, and see where we're at. And let's not just be members, let's be missionaries in Jesus' name.